Hello and welcome to Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard and that was George Harrison and the Inner Light. We've got uh, John Blaney here on the Strange Brew this month and he's published a rather marvellous book on George Harrison called Soul Man, Volume 1. John is a bit of a Beatles expert and uh, this is the first in-depth illustrated critical review of George's solo career. It seems like such a labour of love but the the photos and the research really do put it into the the status of almost a, a, an official book, really. Well, uh, thank, thanks very much for that. I mean, the, these kind of books very much are a labour of love. And, and really, they're, they're, the, they're the kind of books that really get written by fans. You know, I've invested probably three years in this. And uh, if I, well, I'm not even going to try and count the number of hours I've poured into it. And if you were to try and, you know, kind of make a financial equation of, uh, you know, any kind of return you're going to get on your uh, investment of hours, um, it's going to be tiny. So um, it is, you know, it's very much a labour of love. And I've been a fan of the Beatles, you know, solo and uh, as, you know, the Beatles and solo for, uh, well, since I was at school, which is a, a very long time ago. Um, so thanks very much for that. And uh, yeah, Harrison, amazingly prolific from well, what we're talking 68 through to ooh, probably 73 i suppose i mean he was just producing lots and lots of different artists for apple and then dark horse he was uh, writing his own records and uh, and touring and making films and being involved with books i mean the guy was, was just a, a workaholic at that time and it's uh, the sheer volume of work he put out is, is really quite amazing and i think perhaps um, there's an awful lot of it that people don't really realize that he was responsible for uh things like you know doris troy and uh, the billy preston albums he, you know and then of course we haven't mentioned all the contributions uh writing songs with cream and uh appearing on um other people's albums i mean um as i said it really is a, a huge body of work that um he produced in that kind of five-year period great that you mentioned uh all that that you've done, John, because we'll be playing uh, playing that today over the next hour. The first song that we played was, um, well, the instrumental track to the Inner Light that um, came out, I think, as a, an extra uh, song on the uh, the Apple Years collection. I didn't know, and, and obviously found out from reading uh, Soul Man, was that that was uh, an outtake, if you want to use that term, for, for his uh, George's Wonderwall album. Sessions for that album took place uh, in the UK and India. I think the Indian uh, sessions took place first. And obviously, uh, George, by that time, was well into Indian music. You know, he'd recorded, uh, there's a track on Revolver. There's uh, Within You, Without You on um, Sgt. Pepper. And, and, of course, the Beatles had uh, been uh, associating with people like the Maharishi doing getting into transcendental uh, meditation and all that kind of stuff so you know George was uh, was very interested in that and of course we have to mention Ravi Shankar who uh, George had met probably around 65 66 I think um, and obviously Ravi Shankar became very good friends with George. He was his teacher. He was his kind of mentor, um, you know, and they, they actually recorded uh, several albums together as well. And, of course, at that time, if you wanted to record Indian music, you had to go to India. 
I mean, there probably were a few very good Indian musicians in the UK, but, you know, the obvious thing to do was to go to India. So he goes over to India and records much more than he needs for the album, as a lot of recording artists do. And whilst he's over there, recorded the backing track for The Inner Light, uh, brings it back to the UK, nips into Abbey Road, whacks a vocal on, and it becomes the B-side of Lady Madonna. And whilst he's back in the UK, he um, also begins work on the the more the rock side of uh, Wonderwall music. Uh, that's what we're talking about. Um, this is his first solo album, which is a soundtrack for a film. The rock stuff actually is really pretty. It's pretty psychedelic. There's kind of all sorts of uh, there's kind of music concrete type things on there there's um if people are familiar with uh revolution number no. nine uh, there's a track on wonderwall music uh, which is kind of very much a kind of collage and cut-ups and that kind of thing and that was a good whoa, six months before um lennon had a go at it so um harrison was, was well ahead of the game there and of course, um, you know, um, he calls in all his buddies, he's got Eric Clapton, Ringo Starr, the main kind of band involved recording the uh, the rock music for Wonderwall Music was the Remo Four, who were a Liverpool band. And if anyone, actually, they've got a really good album called Smile. Um, if people want to check that out, that's it's a really good kind of um, soul R&B album, actually. Um, but they actually... Uh, became Ashton Gardner and Dyke later on. So, and, and George Harrison played on, uh, I think, their debut album. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's, um, it's a really interesting album. It was, the, it was the first album on Apple, which was significant. And um, I definitely recommend anyone give it a listen because it's really, really interesting. Mm. It's interesting you, you mentioned uh, Ringo Starr as well mm. as George and Eric because... Um, as well as uh, Paul McCartney and Nicky Hopkins, they played on our, on, on our next track, Sour Milk Sea by Jackie Lomax. I mean, that's quite a group. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a super group, really, isn't it? And it, those kind of things seem to happen quite a lot in the uh, the 60s. I, I guess you'd just call up your mates and say, look, I've got I need, a, need some people to come and play on this track because, um, well, we'll probably get onto it in, in a minute because um, obviously the same thing happened with uh, the All Things Must Pass album. You know, there are basically it's got um, – two-thirds of cream on some of the tracks it's got uh pretty much all of uh derek and the dominoes it's, you know it's bad finger ringo stars on it it's it's uh, you know so it's a really isn't it it's an all-star cast so um yeah it's a good track let's have a listen to uh sour milk sea Don't have long. Get out of sound, you see. You don't belong there. Get back to 
Lomax and Sour Milk Sea. I've played that a few times and uh, why not play it again? Next we have Cream and Badge. Uh, That's quite a well-known co-write that George did with Eric Clapton but I think George was also on rhythm guitar on that one. That was, well Cream were basically calling it a day. It was recorded for their album Goodbye and uh, each member of Cream was supposed to uh, supply a track and George helped Eric Clapton uh, write and record his. Um, it was actually recorded around same, the same time that Harrison was in Los Angeles recording with Jackie Lomax. Cream were in town playing, I think, some of their final concerts, and um, George played rhythm guitar.
Badge, uh, also a single from 1969. Next, John, it wouldn't really be a George Harrison themed show with a bit of um, Indian uh, style music, and we've got a little bit of that uh, across the show. This next song is by the Radha Krishna Temple, Hari Krishna Mantra, but it's quite amazing that um, this song that was produced by George actually was a hit record. Well, it was a hit record. And they appeared on Top of the Pops. And they had a second hit record as well. I can't tell you why it was a hit. It was a hit in this country. It didn't do anything in America. All I can assume is that someone at the BBC quite liked it and gave it loads of airplay. Somehow it touched a nerve with uh, the British record-buying public and they, they lapped it up and it was a hit. And, of course, you know, we should say, I mean, the thing really that, really did astonish me in writing this book and you know I'd, I'd listened to George, George Harrison's records for a very long time almost everything he does and I don't think I'm over exaggerating it almost everything he does has some kind of a spiritual context to it you know some of them are very over like Harry Krishna mantra or my sweet lord but you know I'd say 95% of the songs that he writes are about becoming god conscious and uh, you know about some kind of spirituality and he he got very clever actually at kind of um kind of subverting the message you know so uh, to to make it uh, um you know to put some sugar on it if you like because i think you know people probably get fed up with um uh listening to him bashing on all the time about krishna and you know uh, and christ you know he 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 wasn't just um well well read in terms of um of the hindu religion he was a very well read um person he you know he was very good he could quote the bible 
as much as he could quote the Bhagavad Gita, which I think shows just how spiritual he was. It's very important to remember when listening to George Harrison that you may think that he's thinking about, he's, he's singing about romantic love, but a lot of the time he's singing about spiritual love. And uh, Hare Krishna Mantra obviously is about God and it's about, it's it's a mantra, it takes you higher, that's the whole point of it. You, 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 you know, you, you sing it and you get into it and you, you enter a state of um, meditation and that is supposed to help you um, become closer to God. So let's become closer to God and have a listen to Hare Krishna Mantra. Ah uh-huh. 
at Radha Krishna Temple, Hare Krishna Mantra. John, you mentioned Doris Troy uh, when we near, near when we opened the show, and ain't that cute? Mm. Again, uh, a lot of George's uh, mates uh, and musician friends were on that album, and um, I think that was another yet another co co write. Yeah, George co-wrote about three or four songs with Doris Troy. He, uh, although she got the uh, the credit for uh, producing most of that album, I think a lot of it is actually um, co-produced by George. Uh, she seemed to get an awful lot of artistic uh, license at Apple. And the amazing thing is, there's there's you know loads and loads of really famous people on the album, Ginger Baker and you know George Harrison and Ringo Starr and all those sorts of people. And if if you look at the album sleeve. There's not a single mention of any of them. And you would think these days there would be a huge sticker on the front saying features and, you know, it list all the, the big stars. But back then they didn't do it for some reason. And um, all the all these singles from the album flopped and um, so did the album, which is a shame because there's actually some really good stuff on it. Indeed. And that, that's why I picked this one. <laughs> well, let's hear it. Ain't That Cute by Doris Troy. <laughs> One 
Doris Troy, Ain't That Cute. Now, John, um, it was difficult to pick this uh, a song by the ta- artist because there are so many great things, and obviously George Harrison's all over this person's career in this period. It is Billy Preston, and I've picked Sing One for the Lord, which is on Billy's Encouraging Words album, another co-write as well. Yeah, I mean, Billy Preston was a fantastic artist. I mean, I think, I don't th- I think a lot of people really kind of underestimate what a fantastic musician he was and what an amazing career he had because he he started, he was about 11 when he started and he played with Mahalia Jackson, uh, Nat King Cole, uh, Little Richard. He was playing in Little Richard's band when he first met George Harrison and I think uh, Billy Preston would have been about 15 or something at the time, maybe 16, very young anyway. Then he went on to play with Ray Charles and he ended up playing with, you know, virtually everyone from the Beatles to the Rolling Stones. And the other important thing to remember about Billy Preston, of course, is he comes from a gospel background. So George and Billy really shared a kind of a shared spirituality, really. And George obviously loved what Billy Preston did because he continued to use him way into, well, the 1970s. I'm not sure which album was the last one Billy played on, but um, absolutely fantastic museum, uh, musician, absolutely fantastic musician, and boy, could he dance. There's a clip on YouTube of Billy Preston with the Ray Charles Orchestra, and he's singing Double O Soul. He's dressed in this canary yellow suit, and I tell you what, he makes James Brown look like Max Wall. A man of many talents, then, Claire. Yeah, he was. Fantastic, fantastic. So let's, what are we going to hear now? Sing one for the Lord. Let's hear it, come on. You know, sometimes when I stop and think about how good God's been to me, I have to raise my voice and sing.
Billy Preston, sing one for the Lord. This is the George Harrison podcast uh, to tie in with the release of Soul Man Volume 1. I felt compelled to play My Sweet Lord, but felt that I'd want to play a different version. And the okay. chose, yeah, yeah. The, the version I'd like to play is the demo version of My Sweet Lord that's from the early takes album that was some uh, outtakes officially released a few years ago. Um, yeah. The interesting thing that you mentioned in Soul Man was that you, you mentioned that George didn't actually want the final version of uh, My Sweet Lord actually released as a single. Yeah, I think it harks back to the um, to being a Beatle because the Beatles were never very keen on taking singles from albums. That's not to say they didn't because, they you know, obviously Eleanor Rigby was lifted from Revolver and something... George Harrison's first and only A-side um, as a Beatle was lifted from Abbey Road. You know, he wasn't the only one. McCartney didn't want any singles taken from Band on the Run, uh, for example. And George didn't want uh, My Sweet Lord released as a single because he thought it would maybe distract from the, the impact of uh, uh, All Things Must Pass. And um, he was talked round. I don't know who it was. Maybe Phil Spector said, come on, George, this is a brilliant song. It should be a single. And uh, it became his first uh, number one, number one on both sides of the Atlantic, I believe. And um, and it is a great song. It's a brilliantly produced song. And um, it kind of reeks of George Harrison, really, doesn't it? So um, enough of me. Perhaps we should listen to it. My sweet Lord. My Lord, mm-hmm. 
was the demo version of My Sweet Love by George Harrison. Now we have Ringo Starr and It Don't Come Easy. And now I'd like you to set the record straight on this one, uh, John, and I, I don't think it's mentioned in the book. And the question is, was George Harrison involved with the writing of It Don't Come Easy? Oh, well, <laughs> that's that's a million dollar question, really, I suppose, isn't it? The only people who know the answer to that are George Harrison and Ringo Starr. Mm. Um, now, it's very interesting, actually, that they, um, certainly the backing vocals, I think I'm correct, or um, perhaps it's the lyric, I'd have to double check, do mention Harry Krishna. Isn't the backing vocals, I think. The backing vocals are mixed really low down. There's a bootleg version with uh, George on lead vocals. I think I'm right, aren't I? Yeah. Yeah. Now, if you listen to that, the backing vocals are sung by Pete Ham and someone else whose name escapes me. And they're singing Harry Krishna. Now, would Ringo Starr sing Harry Krishna? I mean, maybe, you know, he went on the transcendental meditation thing, but I have a feeling that probably George wrote bits of it. I should imagine that Ringo Starr probably came up with the idea. And actually, if you've seen the film Let It Be, there's a bit in that, isn't there, where um, George is helping Ringo finish off Octopus's Garden? Mm. So it could very well be that it was one of those, you know, hey, George, I've written this song. Could you help us finish it off? And George went, sure, Ringo, as long as I can put in Harry Krishna. <laughs> <laughs> and Ringo, Ringo probably said, yeah, all right then. <laughs> but we've got to put it really low in the mix. So George probably had a hand in, in finishing it. Whether it's actual co-write is, uh, is another question, though.
that was Ringo Starr and It Don't Come Easy. Next, we have Ronnie Spector and Try Some, Buy Some. And um, I didn't know from reading Soul Man that um, Ronnie didn't seem to like that song very much, whereas I think that song's rather marvellous. Well, it's a, it's an example of someone really not understanding George Harrison and, and not ex- understanding the song, although I, th- I think it's fairly obvious what it's about. It's about temptation. Uh, it's about being tempted by uh, you know, uh, the material world. And by the material world, uh, that's just the, the world we live in. It's, you know, it's George saying, you know, I'm I'm just like anyone else. I get tempted by these things. And boy, did he ever get tempted by those naughty things that he shouldn't. It's it's about the rock and roll industry. You know, it's like, hey, guys, you know, um, you've been on the road a while now. Having problems sleeping at night? Hmm, I've got a few pills that might help you. You know, it's, it's all about that kind of stuff. And uh, really, it's, it's a fairly obvious, it's fairly obvious what it's about. And um, but I don't know. Ronnie didn't get it. Um, and she really struggled with it. Although I think she gives a pretty good vocal performance. Mm-hmm. Uh, she she didn't like it at all, and um, which is a shame. And actually, David Bowie recorded a version as well. Um, Indeed. Yeah, and a very good version. And I, I think he said the same as you. He said it was one of his favourite George songs. So, um, And it's got a fantastic production. And, of course, um, George later put his own vocals on it. Uh, it's exactly the same backing track, uh, but with George's vocals. And um, he actually did that with a second Ronnie Spector track. He did that with... Um, a song called You, which was recorded uh, during uh, All Things Must Pass. And I believe that Ronnie actually put a vocal on it, because if you listen to his version very carefully, you can hear her ba- her vocals very quietly in the background. Anyway, enough of you. Uh, let's have a listen to Try Some, Buy Some. Way back in time, someone said try some, I tried some, now buy some, I bought some, whoa. Thank you. 
Ronnie Spector and Try Some Buy Some from 1971. Next, we have Bad Finger, Day After Day. And um, and I think you um, in Soul Man really uh, cover this in detail. Um, this song is notable for kind of really capturing how uh, George Harrison operated in the studio. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's, this has got one of those kind of classic George Harrison guitar solos, which is also, uh, it's got Pete Ham also playing guitar, um, sly guitar on it. And George Harrison was a stickler for, he was a perfectionist. I mean, um, he was beyond perfection. He would... He he recorded in the old-fashioned way, which was to go into the studio and record everything live, and then he'd overdub on top of that. So uh, for this particular example, you've got the backing track. It's already been recorded, and George says, OK, Pete, now's time for you and me to put on the slide guitar solos. And as usual, he makes life very, very difficult for himself because instead of you know him going on and putting his part on and then getting... Pete Ham to put on a nice harmony part later, which is what most people would do. They do it together live in the studio. Pete Ham is really nervous because he's playing guitar with George Harrison. My God. And they just went for take after take after take after take. And even when they'd perfected it, George Harrison would often find something wrong with it. And he'd just do it again and again and again. And he must have been a recording engineer's nightmare to work with. Um, but it got results. And uh, this is another great song. So uh, let's have a listen to uh, Badfinger Day After Day.
Radfinger, Day After Day. And um, if you haven't heard it, do uh, go back into the Strange Brew archives and check out my podcast and interview with Badfinger's Joey Molland. Next, this is a song. Uh, I, I do like to think I'm a bit of a Beatles nut, but um, thanks to Soul Man, I'd never heard about this song. It is yet another co-write of George Harrison's one I am not familiar with. I am now. It's uh, David Bromberg and The Hold Up. Oh yeah, well David Bromberg. I mean, he was um, quite the uh, the up and coming guitarist at the time. We're talking about I think 1971. I think they wrote this song, and uh, George Harrison just happened to be in New York. I think it was um, probably 1971. What would he have been doing in 1971? Oh, concert for Bangladesh or something like that. And uh, he got invited to dinner with David Bromberg around his manager's house, as you do. And there happened to be a guitar there. And David Bromberg just happened to pick it up and started, you know, playing and probably kind of saying to George, hey, you know, it's, you know, some neat chords here, George. You, you might want to take note of them. And uh, one thing led to another and they ended up writing this song, which is kind of, you know, it's um, it's quite Harrison-esque in a way because some of the lyrics and things. And uh, it's got a nice George Harrison guitar solo, which was um, overdubbed later. But, uh, yeah, David Bromberg, The Hold Up. Stick up your hands, you must stand and be there. My stomach's empty, my clothes are all torn. Open your hearts to the joys of the giver. Only your pockets are terribly warm. So hold up, no way to mistake it We're men of violence, so don't fool around If you have money, we're going to take it Try and stop us, you'll end underground When we get your money We'll ride towards the sunset At Rose's Canteen, we'll stop at the door We'll spend all your money Tomorrow evening we'll be back for more So hand us the money, don't stand there and shiver Tax time is coming, give alms to the poor Or I'll put a bullet right through your best liver Wealth is disease and I am the cure Sunset at Rosa's canteen, we'll stop at the door. We'll spend all your money just getting the nose wet. Tomorrow evening, we'll be back for more. So here's the money, don't stand there and shiver. Tax time is coming, give alms to the poor. Put a bullet right through your best liver Wealth is disease and I am the cure 
David Bromberg and the holdup. Next after David Bromberg, we have Shankar, family and friends, and I am missing you. Oh, yeah. um, this seemed to have quite a lot of uh, musicians on again, but obviously another uh, Ravi Shankar time. It's another R- Ravi Shankar time, but it's a bit odd because I, I think what George wanted to do was try and popularise uh, what Ravi was doing. Well, that's kind of my impression anyway. And, and kind of uh, make it a little bit more palatable for a Western audience. And I'm not really sure that this one kind of works uh, as well as it should do. Um, it was recorded in Los Angeles. It's got all the usual names on it. Um, Jim Keltner and uh, George is on it and Tom Scott, I think, people like that. And it was originally destined for Apple, but Apple were kind of uh, falling apart at the seams at the time. Uh, so George very wisely held it over and issued it on his own Dark Horse records. And I Am Missing You was actually issued as a single, and uh, which is perhaps when uh, listeners hear it, they might think that's an odd choice for a single. But um, that's what people did in the early 70s. And uh, when you own a record label, you can do whatever you want. That's what George Harrison did. He, um, he released... Uh, a single of I Am Missing You by Ravi Shankar and Friends.
Ravi Shankar and friends, I am missing you on Dark Horse Records. In Dark 19- Horse. Dark Horse. <laughs> <laughs> now we're talking about singles, actually we're getting much more commercial now. Uh, we have Splinter and Costa Fine Town. For me, again, that's uh, a marvellous production by George. Yeah, Splinter were signed to George's Dark Horse label. And I think actually they were the kind of the longest surviving band on Dark Horse. They released ooh, was it four albums, I think, for Dark Horse over a period of uh, probably six years. George was actually producing a film at the time called Little Malcolm and his struggle against the eunuchs, which has recently been re-released on DVD and Blu-ray. It's well worth watching. And um, they needed a band for uh, one of the scenes in the film and kind of Splinter were around, but they're a duo for people who don't know. Um, George took them in the studio, recorded a couple of songs with them, really liked what he heard. And then kind of threw himself into producing their debut album. And the big hit from it was uh, Costa Fine Town. Dirty old hole in the side of the road for the man who cleans the streets. Open pop doors where the working class goes at night. Never crawl for the glass along the top. Man, I was born there. I'm gonna walk right back. Cost a fight. Lonely. 
Splinter and Cost of Fine Town. I think that was uh, a top 20 hit over here in the UK. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Next, we're uh, going with a trio of uh, George Harrison tracks, um, all linked from earlier periods in his career, starting with You, which, uh, as you mentioned, was uh, recorded in 71 for the Ronnie Spector album. I was meaning to ask you, because we are finishing off with a trio of uh, George's tracks, uh, which are mainly linked uh, or written earlier on, do you think there was a bit of a sort of decline in George's songwriting as we sort of go into the mid to late seventies? Uh, no, I don't think his songwriting declined. I, his production style certainly changed. It got very slick and it got very produced. And if you read enough interviews with George Harrison, when he's asked what kind of music he likes, he always says nice music. What he mean? What he means by that? I think something that's quite relaxing. It's not too demanding. You just put it on. You have a glass of wine. You know, you chill out, and it it makes you feel nice. And that's what a lot of his records were. And of course, if you put that into the context of the time, from you know, I say seventy seven onwards, nice wasn't what music was. You know, it, it was kind of punk. It was aggressive. You know, there's a the whole two tone thing, which you know that's that can be. You know, it, it's not nice music as such. It's it's music with attitude, and Harrison's music doesn't necessarily have an attitude. But, you know, the, the whole aim of his songwriting was to make people aware of what he thought was important, and that was God. And obviously, you know. The more relaxed you are, the more calm you are, the more meditative you are, the closer you're going to be to God or or just being closer to the world around you. That That's what it is, you know. What we're going to play now then? So we're going to play you. Yeah. So that's that's perhaps not a good example. We'll play it anyway. But I think you, that's that's just a pop song. You was written for Ronnie Spector and it is George Harrison showing how good he was at writing a pastiche of those kind of um, brill-building songs from the early 60s. You could imagine this being done by the Ronettes in 1963. And that takes a lot of skill. That's not easy to pull off. And also he does a really good job on the vocals on this track. His singing on this is, is, is great. And he said at the time it was in a really high key. It was in a key that he, normally he wouldn't sing in, but he does a fantastic job. So we must play you because it is a great track and it's one of my favourites. But it's not really typical. This is like um, this is the five percent where he's just writing pop music, disposable, fluffy pop music. The other ninety-five percent is where he's being a bit more serious and he wants us to relate to God. So. Let's forget God for a minute (laughs) and have a listen to you.
George Harrison Yu, one of his, his more popular related uh, material there. Yeah, and it was a hit. It wasn't a, a huge hit, but I think it was top 40, mm. which isn't bad. And uh, next we have um, Beautiful Girl by George Harrison that was from his uh, 33 and a third album from 1976. That song's interesting for me because I understand from reading Soul Man that that was a song that George started way back in 1969 and I think there might be some demos knocking around from that period. Yeah, that's a really old song. I mean... um... One can only assume that it was written for his first wife, although a lot of people assume that something was written for Patty. And he's always said that something was just, uh, it wasn't written for anyone. It was just a general love song. So maybe, maybe Beautiful Girl falls into that category again. You know, it's not, it doesn't necessarily have to be about a specific person. Although probably by the time he finished it, it was, you know, he was, he would have been inspired by, um, Olivia uh, Harrison, who was by then uh, his uh, his wife. So uh, it's and it's um and it's a really lovely song. And um, I think probably he recorded it at about the right time. If he recorded it for All Things Must Pass, I I, I don't think it would have uh, sounded anything uh, like it does. So um, yeah, beautiful girl. Let's have a listen.
George Harrison, beautiful girl from 33 and a third from 1976. Next, John, uh, before we uh, finish off with Not Guilty uh, by George Harrison and uh, that, that song now uh, famous for, for being a song being a song attempted by the Beatles and featuring Anthology, but this version being uh, more laid back. Mm. Can you tell uh, everybody when uh, Soul Man Volume 1 is out and um, how they get a copy of that? Well, George Harrison's Soul Man is released on 25th of March, I believe. Correct me if I'm wrong. And uh, it should be available from all of your favourite online retailers. We won't name names, but you know which ones we're referring to. Um, If you can't find it on your favourite online retailer, you can just walk into your local bookshop. That's if you've still got one on your high street and ask them to order a copy. And... um, They'll get one for you. And uh, I'm not being biased here because you're here, John. Um, It is a marvellous, marvellous effort. And um, the the research and um, presentation of the the book really does, it does really feel like an official publication. Well, thanks very much for that. I I got a proof copy last week. And uh, even though I say so myself, I think it is perhaps the best looking book I've I've produced because I'm self-publishing it. I have been published by various uh, publishing houses, but I decided to go alone this time. And because technology has moved on and such like, um, it looks great. As you say, it does look like an an official um, publication, but it's not. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, I I live about six miles from Henley. I'll have a a little story to tell you. Yeah, this is this is true. Um, I was working in a record shop. I was I was doing um, I was doing my degree. Uh, I was a mature student, and uh, I worked in a record shop in Reading. And it was about the time of the anthology albums. I was in there one day. Shop was empty, and this young lad walks in with his dad, and he asked for a CD. I can't remember which one it was. And I went, "Oh yeah, we've got that." And I walked <laughs> out into the shop to get the CD. And I kind of eyeballed his dad and I went, oh, my God, it's George Harrison. It's George Harrison standing at the end of the counter. (laughs) And it completely, you can imagine, it completely threw me. And he looked dead scruffy. He had, you know, several days beard on him. He had, it looked like a donkey jacket and one of those those kind of beanie uh, hats on, you know. (laughs) And you would have walked right by him in the street. Mm. So I got the CD and I sold it to, it was obviously Danny, hmm. and um, I shortchanged him. <laughs> <laughs> of all the people in the world to shortchange, it, it so threw me, you know. And anyway, he comes back to the captain and he said, uh, I think now I gave you a 20. <laughs> and I went, oh, sorry. And I, I bet, bet George was going, the bastards, the bastards. <laughs> Even the people in the record shops are trying to rip me off. <laughs> But anyway, yeah, he came in the shop and it completely, you know, oh, oh my God, it's George Harrison. You'll have that on your tombstone. I shan't change George <laughs> Harrison. It's <laughs> <laughs> your big moment. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But it does freak you out, you know, because you don't expect to see these people. I mentioned um, that our last song is Not Guilty, and that's just our final opportunity to listen to a song that George actually um, originally uh, tried in the Beatles. Yeah, uh, it was originally going to be on the White Album, and um, they couldn't nail it. Basically, what it needed was uh, what they call a pad, 
is um, usually put a, uh, like a keyboard part um, that holds holds the, the song together. And for some reason, they didn't think of doing that um, in 1968. Uh, but that's exactly what George did when he recorded it in 1979 for his George Harrison album. Um, and it's a very different version. It's it's um, it's very nice. Because the Beatles version, it's got attitude, hasn't it? The yeah, Beatles version has yeah. got attitude. And by the time he gets around to recording it 11 years later, all that attitude's gone. Because he's a different person, let's not forget. You know, he's he's a lot more relaxed and chilled out and uh, in tune with the world. So it's, it's very nice. John, thank you very much uh, for taking the time to speak to me today. I wish you all the best, not that you need it, with the deluxe book uh, soul man volume one it is rather marvelous and i recommend all strange brew listeners grab themselves a copy before it sells out well thanks very much it's been really nice talking to you and uh talking about george you can't get much better than that can you let's listen to not guilty by george harrison cheers bye good night Of getting in your way while you're trying to steal the day. Not guilty. And I'm not here for the rest. I'm not trying to steal your vest. I'm not trying to be smart. I only want what I can get. I'm really sorry for your aging head, but like you heard me say.
you know, really the past, the present and the future is just one big cycle. I believe, as most Buddhists and Hindus believe, that it's us coming back, you know. Look out, kid, it's something you did, God knows when, but you're doing it again. The problem with talking is, you know, like, the more you say, the more you bury yourself in, you know, it's, it's very difficult to express what you feel in your heart. In a song, though, because you have the addition of the music and the value of um, sound, that it touches places that you know other play, uh, other things don't touch, and so it can stir you from a much deeper, subtle level. I try to do my music about what my experiences are. This is real life. You know, trees are growing, and they give oxygen to the planet. They don't take it away like, you know, traffic jams. Sometimes I just feel I'm actually on the wrong planet, you know? <laughs> and I feel great when I'm in my garden, but the yeah. moment I go out the gate, I think, what the hell am I doing here?